Um, I will say this to the extent you're following the Russia investigation. To me, that's a, you know, the fact is Sessions is recused from that. And just as a, as a Rosenstein is ultimately going to be the person to make calls on that. And to me, um, that provide, it should provide people a level of comfort in terms of professionalism. He, uh, he will never sacrifice his professionalism for politics. And so now let's take a step back. He is, he's very aggressive. I mean, in Maryland, he was incredibly aggressive about using the criminal law in medical fraud cases. Um, they had a series of cases against doctors who had um, were overprescribing stents, uh, heart stents, uh, you know, just in a brazen way. And he ended up uh, sending one doctor, I think, to jail for 10 years and another for seven years. So he's not afraid to go after people. And I think um, I think he's going to be a lot different, for example, uh, than some of the other people who have been around there. I think he's a little more aggressive than Leslie Caldwell. And I think he's going to push people to you know, do the right thing. But he's going to want to see certain cases handled in a certain way. So, that's, uh, so I don't think we're going to see a big change, if anything. Uh, the only policy change that I suspect we'll ever see on the FCPA pilot program is maybe to make declinations a little bit more available as opposed to a 50% reduction off the bottom of the guideline range. But assuming that you have a company that fully cooperates and hand, hands over individuals, um, uh, I think that they're going to try to reward companies a little bit more or make it a little bit more explicit. You know, it's kind of been implicit with some cases, but I don't know. What do you, I don't know. The other interesting appointment that hasn't been made yet is the head of the criminal division. And I think that will have a, an impact as well. And I, I haven't even heard from my friends and people who've come back into the administration, uh, you know, people that I know, I haven't heard anything in terms of uh, people being named, you know, are on the sh short list for that. Mike, you've so really that's been, sort of my impression of where we're going. Yeah, you've been writing and talking about these issues certainly since the election. And, and if I could say there's one theme in your writing, it's the uh, continuity and professionalism of the line DOJ prosecutors. And that lead led you to say in the fall, and I think I heard you say again, that there'll be more continuity than anything else. And that really whatever the leadership change at the top, when it comes into the, the day it today administration, uh, you're, you're going to have more of the same. Is that fair, a fair assessment? Yeah, that's a fair assessment. And I think there's another really strong um, uh, influence here is that whoever did this and whoever really set this in motion, I mean, we can discuss whether it was the Bush administration or the Obama administration. And I think you've written about this as well, Tom, is sort of the uh, the building of the, the the global enforcement system and relationships, um, relationships among law enforcement and relationships among prosecutors. I think one of uh, our panelists, I think one time was describing the program where prosecutors would come and be trained in the United States on how to conduct anti-corruption uh, investigations and prosecutions. And all of that 
I think, goes to the fact that there's sort of a global infrastructure that's been built upon, you know, I'm not going to compare it to NATO, uh, but I'm saying there's, uh, in a very small sense, there's a um, camaraderie and relationships that are built and sharing of information and um, professionalism that cuts across not just what we do in the United States, but how we support other uh, entities that are trying to prosecute and root out corruption. So I think that is another, to dismantle that or to just suddenly reject that or to even put less emphasis on that is going to be very difficult because I think it's something that's supported by the State Department. It's supported by other elements within the administration. And I think that um, it gets a lot of praise. I think the United States gets a lot of praise and it helps us build relationships with other countries. And uh, it puts us on the right side of the equation, you know, trying to root out corrupt leaders who take money and get the money back or do whatever we can. So there's much more to this than just, you know, are we picking on companies and are we, you know, in the usual political thing about are there enough individuals being prosecuted and all that. I, that's why I see this as much different than um, other types of initiatives that may occur under one administration and then another administration comes in and cuts it back. This thing, I, I don't know if it started with Bush or with Obama, but it's certainly been successful. And um, and I think we can't we can't underestimate the impact of it. So, Mike, if I could turn to an area that that there might be a different focus or really in a different enforcement scheme um, within the Department of Justice, the antitrust division, which at least since the 80s, I think it's been fair to say that Republicans have been little bit less uh, enforcement prone and Democrats have been a little bit more enforcement prone. Could you maybe contrast the uh, difference in the, the antitrust division with uh, the uh, fraud section and specifically the uh, FCPA unit? Yeah, I think the antitrust division now, the nominee for that is Macon Delrahim, who I know very well because he actually hired me to work on the Senate Judiciary Committee when I first went up there 2002 or so. But that was, boy, I was a lot younger than, I guess we both were, Tom, uh, 2002. But uh, Macon is uh, a very well-experienced, I mean, very well-known person. Um, the antitrust division is a little bit different uh, in terms of their philosophy, and it started from the 80s. Let's put one issue to the side. The criminal prosecution scheme or program will continue full bore. I mean, nobody ever questions that. And if anything, the leniency program there from the 1990s has been a raging success. And uh, one, I and I hate to divert for one point here, which is I've always said that the FCPA will eventually mature to a program where three individuals will be – an average of three individuals will be prosecuted for every one corporate case. And that's the ratio that occurred in the antitrust division uh, – or occurs now. For every price fixer or cartel member company, three individuals are picked out and prosecuted. Now, it, they, it took them uh, about 20 years to get to that. So we have to be a little bit fairer to the FCPA unit. 
uh, for a long time it was one to one, then it went up to two to one, and now it's at three to one. And that, it takes time to build criteria and experience and the best way to prosecute these cases. So criminal antitrust is going to continue. Uh, where the uh, where the change occurs is in uh, merger enforcement and in uh, just straight out civil enforcement, like let's say against the credit card companies over credit card fees or things like that. Um, that is unlikely to occur or likely to increase. If anything, it'll decrease. Um, and it just is, has has been the nature of the beast when the Republicans are in power. Uh, antitrust enforcement generally uh, goes down on the civil side, which is a lot. Now, the only thing I can say in contrast to that is that the antitrust division has had an incredible, you know, they've won their last five merger challenges in court, which is rare because they're not known for being great trial lawyers and uh, because they didn't go to court that often, but they've won their last five, and they're big ones, you know, in the health insurance field and things like that. And they've won them, and there may be some push, you know, to continue that aggressive policy. Um, but I do think that uh, companies and defense lawyers are gonna push back and see how much they can convince this new administration not to stop a particular uh, proposed merger. So we'll, we'll have to see how that, you know, breaks out. Mike, another area that you've commented on, commented on was about the effect of the Yates memo. And I know some commentators have questioned whether the Yates memo really has had an effect on FCPA prosecutions, but it was uh, designed to be a white-collar prosecution memo, and so much broader in scope. Have you seen evidence of the effects of the Yates memo in uh, any other areas? Well, that's been my, you know, people criticize, and there's, there's some commentators who have criticized the FCPA unit for not bringing any individual criminal prosecutions this year connected, or last year, connected to a corporate case. I mean, we've had the individuals prosecuted connected to Petavesa. I think there are eight individuals in Houston, and then there was the aviation case, the Mexican Air aviation case, which occurred at the end of last year. But we haven't had individuals who've been called out of corporate cases and brought, you know, and individual cases brought against them. So there's, uh, so the question has come up, what impact does the Yates memo really had? The antitrust division, as I said, already had a robust individual prosecution uh, system going. I think we'll, uh, the one area I would point out that, uh, and I'm not saying that this proves the difference, um, is in the uh, VW Takata airbag cases. In both of those cases, we had individuals who were prosecuted, um, as well as the companies in, as part of a resolution. That is pretty significant in my view because it's very similar to the GM case where no individuals were prosecuted. Now, the GM case was announced, let's say, two weeks, I think, after the announcement of the Yates case, so a uh, Yates memo. So I don't think that there was enough time for, or I don't think that people put the GM case through a Yates type analysis or, you know, apply the Yates memo to it. Um, my feeling is that the Yates memo has had an impact. Uh, the VW uh, and Takata cases are examples. Uh, from what I hear, there are more cases being brought against individuals 
in the healthcare field, uh, although they lost a big case up in Massachusetts against a CEO of a, a company. And I'm hoping they don't, uh, you know, uh, sort of get cold feet about it. Um, but, you know, the other thing that I hear, Tom, is that people, uh, when they go in and make presentations to the government on internal investigations, they bring in now what are called Gates binders. Right. And these binders have the individual cases, you know, analyzed for each, uh, uh, you know, potential individual. And that, you know, the defense bar or the white collar bar has taken Yates very, very seriously. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm not saying just because I'm not trying to say because, you know, Romney had binders full of women and uh, that these people are bringing in Yates binders, that it means there's, you know, comprehensive, exhaustive criminal cases being suggested against individuals or at least analyzed. I'm just saying it's clear that the bar is responding to it. And so I, I, I really take issue with people who say um, we know that it's not working. I mean, I don't think we, the, uh, we don't know anything until the government tells us what the statistics look like. I agree that the FCPA unit may not be bringing individual cases, and to me, some of them are inexplicable. Like, you know, going years back, I I always scratch my head over the Avon case, uh, or Vimplecom, or some of these other cases from last year. I mean, I know that in Odebrecht uh, there were individuals who were prosecuted in Brazil, so I get that. Uh, in Embraer, there were individuals prosecuted in other countries, but it doesn't mean that there weren't good candidates in the United States. And if you went, and you and I have talked about this, when you read through the facts, there are like certain people or that they describe in a general, without saying their name, that you sit there and you go, that person should be prosecuted. You know, and I, I'm, I'm not sure what the explanation is from the FCPA perspective. But I still think it's remnants of their gun, you know, the, the SHOT Show experience and other cases. Uh, what was it? Uh, the one in uh, Tiger Patrol or what was that one uh, uh, where they lost the case with yep. the general counsel as the uh, informant? Right. You know, he was wearing the wire. And he and, you know, I, I'm sure they probably thought they had a really good case then, but. You know, so I think there's some reluctance to, you know, lose in, in that situation. And I think that's the wrong attitude. My attitude is, as a prosecutor, was if I lost, I lost. But that didn't mean I shouldn't bring a case. Uh, you know, sometimes cases didn't break the way you wanted them to break. So. Okay, well, now let me turn to Matt Kelly. And Matt, you have been, uh, if not uh, writing extensively about the Trump administration and, and different facets of the regulatory enforcement scheme, you've certainly been thinking and talking about it quite a bit. And it's really been much broader than certainly uh, anti-corruption compliance. You've looked at it from various regulatory angles, uh, the SEC, uh, some of the deregulation efforts, uh, uh, at least announced by the Trump administration, access to cap capital under Dodd-Frank. And I was wondering if you might just give us your thoughts on um, what the discussion of regulatory enforcement is, and do you see it going uh, in any different way than maybe Jay uh, is seeing, and uh, particularly um, you know, with the SEC and Dodd-Frank? Well, yeah, you know, I'm 
tempted to uh, kind of pick up on Jay's allusions to literary classics that I I never really read in college like I was supposed to. So I'm going to make reference to what I did read in college to describe, I think, the general skill of the Trump administration so far is Mad Magazine. Um, These guys really have not accomplished much yet, and I remain skeptical that uh, they will or that, uh, you know, compliance officers, frankly, that they can trust what is being said. Um, I, like Jay said, you know, I was at that uh, ethics and compliance initiative conference uh, this week, and I heard Jeff Sessions speak about the FCPA. But I thought that more interesting was after he gave his prepared remarks, uh, AG Sessions sat down with the head of the ECI, Pat Harned, and she posed some questions to him that were a bit more unscripted. And if you listen to what Sessions said in his unscripted moments, he really started to give a lot more wiggle room or a lot more thought about some of the more cynical assumptions that some people are making. And uh, one of the things that he did say in the unscripted Q&A after he had done giving his prepared remarks was that, you know, he said that really the U.S. does need to look at whether zealous enforcement here will put our companies at a disadvantage on the global stage. That's exactly what the cynics have worried about uh, with Trump and anti-corruption enforcement. Um, So I hear all the speeches. I agree with the speeches in what they say as far as they go. Uh, You know, they're nice words. But like Jay also said, we really need to see some substantive action here to see what this administration really thinks. And I was, you know, frankly, I was troubled as a compliance and anti-corruption enthusiast when I heard Sessions in the unscripted part talking more about we need to make sure that we're not basically not shooting ourselves in the foot economically in the globalized world by enforcing anti-corruption laws here that others don't bother to enforce. Look, either you're a prosecutor standing up and saying we will enforce all laws or you're not. Uh, You're a politician talking about, you know, I guess, selective enforcement as a vehicle for economic policy. Now, I personally think that's a dangerous path to go down. I'm not opposed to politicians doing that, but I thought Jeff Sessions was running around saying he's a prosecutor who's going to prosecute crimes to as they are. There's a there's a gap there. There's wiggle room. And we need to close up that gap and see what's going on. Um, I also thought a lot. I I did catch that on several points during his remarks, he talked about how he's never enforced an FCPA case, which is a very good admission to make. Uh, I would love to see more about what Trevor McFadden thinks, because he didn't enforce any cases, but he worked on defense work at Baker McKenzie which is no slouch at FCPA work, and they certainly know their stuff around this law. So I I think that Trevor McFadden is a good person to have more at the take point on FCPA, and I'm delighted that we now have Rod Rosenstein confirmed as the deputy attorney general because he will have a bigger policy role to play than Jeff Sessions about FCPA enforcement. But in a, it, it, I came away from Sessions' speech thinking that he's still more preoccupied with his interests in enforcing this supposed rampant crime wave that isn't actually happening in almost all of the country and rounding up every undocumented immigrant he can find. 
Um, if those are his priorities, okay. But in that case, it's almost, you know, cynics will say he's just paying lip service to FCPA enforcement. And so far, he has not given them anything to show that those cynics are wrong. And that that's the, the one big thing I come across here that sticks out in my mind. Um, I will say that I still think on the SEC side, we we might see some interesting uh, views in enforcement in that I think that it, enforcement there might still look somewhat like what we saw in previous administrations. My guess is that Jay Clayton, who will be confirmed supposedly as SEC chairman, I think possibly this evening, if the Senate is going to pull some overtime, but definitely by early next week. Um, you know, he clearly is more interested in rewriting rules for corporate disclosure. And he is hasn't really spoken all that much about wanting to backpedal on SEC enforcement, either around um, the FCPA or anything else. Um, you know, so we still have to see what's going on there. But I mean, he actually is one of the names that has surfaced as a possible enforcement director at the SEC uh, is a donor to Hillary Clinton's campaign. Now, is that person donating because he liked Hillary Clinton or he disliked Donald Trump? I don't know. But nonetheless, um, you know, you have to think that there may be more centrists slipping into SEC leadership uh, and we'll see how that has to go. But I've been more struck by anything else by the Trump administration's inability to get much done at either at the executive level or certainly on the legislative level where both Trump and Congress, like they're they're nowhere on pulling together a plan. They have nice talking points. I'm sure it looks great as a couple of bullet points on a PowerPoint slide, but we haven't really seen much substantive work on anything that Donald Trump had promised before. It, it's all either held up in court or there's no details or there's flim flammery and enough wiggle room for, you know, a worm and Swiss cheese. Um, that That's my big takeaway so far. So the um, is there any, anything that you could think of or you might even suggest that uh, either to the Department of Justice or SEC do to really make a splash around um, FCPA enforcement? And, and I, I would ask you to consider that in the context of the, the ZTE enforcement action around trade sanctions and export controls that you wrote a piece about, uh, because that seemed to be a, a pretty uh, strong statement. That, that was an interesting case. And um, so for those who might not know it, this happened, I think, back in March, where ZTE, which is a Chinese telecom company that had committed rampant violations of export control law shipping sensitive equipment to Iran, um, ZTE was fined $892 million. And this is a company that makes only about $15 billion a year in revenue. So that's a big, painful shot to a company of that size. And Jeff Sessions actually did stand up and he gave a speech there talking about the need to do this. Um, my questions about ZTE are how much of that enforcement work was already done by the Obama administration prosecutors. I know the answer is a lot, but I don't know exactly how much. Um, and it is interesting that for all of the talk Trump and Sessions and others have said about don't penalize corporations, penalize individuals, because penalizing corpor corporations only hurts the shareholders who already suffered because of the misconduct. Um, 
uh, and then they all say, unless it's really pervasive, egregious, corporate rampant misconduct. And that's exactly what we did see in ZTE, where the company was deliberately engaging in a second wave of misconduct, selling goods to Iran while they were in negotiations, settling their first episodes of misconduct, selling goods to Iran. Um, senior leaders there mis misled everybody. Uh, so somewhat not surprisingly, uh, the, you know, the Trump administration still, including Jeff Sessions, they dropped the hammer on these guys. But that is not going to be the case most of the time in FCPA enforcement or in many other types of misconduct. They are going to be more about individuals, and we have to see how they, the, the uh, Justice Department really will enforce the vast majority of cases that are caused by a few errant individuals and not a rampant corporate-wide conspiracy to mislead and commit some sort of a crime. Um, you know, I will be very curious to see, for example, what might happen with the Walmart FCPA prosecution, which is still out there dangling in the breeze. Walmart has done an immense amount of work to clean up its supposed misconduct. Uh, a lot of the supposed misconduct may not have been that much misconduct anyways, as they pressed into the details of it. Uh, last I heard, Walmart was concerned about settling whether that might harm its eligibility to accept and participate in the food stamp program uh, because so many of its customers do use food stamps at Walmart stores. Um, okay, if you gave Walmart a waiver on that and then canceled all corporate penalties, like that would be a very interesting signal to see. And I'm not even sure what that may or may not mean for the community. But at this point, Walmart has been under investigation since 2011. How much longer is it going to be under investigation? We don't know. Um, you know, there are any other number of ways that the department could step up and, you know, start indicting individuals. Uh, it could start uh, rejecting deferred prosecution agreements as a vehicle to uh, be used. I know that Jeff Sessions has always said when he was a senator that he preferred not to have DPAs. Um, it's easy to say that when you are a senator. It's harder to say it when you're an attorney general and you have actual cases that you have to decide, I'm not going to prosecute them at all. Um, you know, We'll see what can go on. The only other point um, that did streak across our radar screen just recently was uh, the on Thursday of this week, so that would be April 27, the SEC did give out a whistleblower award of $4 million, which is a big deal. And um, if you are going to be cynical and think that the administration is going to backpedal on all sorts of enforcement, you wouldn't expect to see a whistleblower award. Um, you might not necessarily expect to see any more whistleblower rewards. And maybe we won't in the future. We don't know. What is frustrating about SEC whistleblower awards is that there's very, very little detail that gets disclosed about these things. Uh, but we have one. It's a sizable award. It's been months and months since uh, the Trump administration has now taken over. Clearly, if somebody somewhere really wanted to put a freeze on th these awards, um, the acting chairman, Michael P. Wawar, who is a Republican, he could have put a freeze on this if he wanted, uh, but they didn't. They've gone forward, and that's an interesting statement. So it's a mixed bag. You do see some glimmers that, yes, enforcement will still keep going in ways that compliance officers might expect. Uh, you might also see that uh, maybe we won't. We just There's too much here that we don't know. There's still a lot of inaction at the executive branch, and 
it's a train wreck of incoherent action over on the legislative side, and we could get into that a whole other time. Well, Matt, one thing you started writing about in 2016, and you've continued to write about in 2017, is what you call the Trump effect. And it's around disclosures companies have uh, either made or been required to make under uh, securities laws about the effect that uh, Donald Trump might have on their businesses. And I guess what I wanted to pose to you is here at the uh, end of the first 100 days, given what you just talked about in terms of policy management, uh, both at the executive levels and the congressional levels, do you think we'll continue to see Trump effect disclosures? Um, are, are things settling down, or do you think things will be just as much up in the air in the second and third hundred days? Well, I think that it's going to be up in the air. So I think we will see more companies disclosing that they don't know what they're doing about the Trump administration, which is essentially what we saw in the first quarter. Um, we saw a very few. Trump disclosures uh, being submitted in quarterly or 10K reports back in last November, December, started to see many more in the first quarter. I think we're going to start to see a lot more over the summer and into the fall. Companies have to disclose significant risks. And if you are in, for example, health insurance right now, um, you know, Donald Trump is threatening to pull the plug on Obamacare subsidies that would leave some insurers forced to cancel plans this year, before the end of this year, plans that they'd already been awarding to millions of people might conceivably be in jeopardy, which would be a gigantic and material change to insurers. And they don't know if Donald Trump is going to do this. What are you supposed to disclose there? You disclose that this could be a material thing, but we don't know what we're doing. We have to wait for the next tweet. Um, That is the best disclosure that you can give, I don't fault the companies for giving a vague disclosure here, but I do fault the greater economic and regulatory climate that Donald Trump is in charge of here, that he's creating a world where all they can do is say, we might have a material change around NAFTA and trade policy, workforce development and immigration policy, um, pricing and tax reform, you know, healthcare insurance and what that might mean for our primary lines of business. If you are in pharmaceuticals, don't forget he once talked about imposing price controls on drugs. Where is that gone? We don't know. But hey, I'm waiting for the next tweet. Maybe it's going to come back. If that's the climate that we have to sail into that wind or tack into the breeze there, and it's so unpredictable, you're going to see more disclosures that aren't going to say a whole lot. But that's not the fault of the company. That's the fault of the Trump administration. Um so I, I suspect that we will see a whole lot more that isn't going to be able to tell us much. Well, gentlemen, uh, I wanted to uh, bring back something that we've enjoyed in the past that, uh, and unfortunately uh, not uh, given us time to do in the last few episodes, and that is our rants. And I, I heard uh, certainly with Jay and, and Matt is pretty close to rants that uh, sounded almost good enough that I could cut out and put them in the rant section. But I wanted to uh, just specifically ask you guys to uh, – to give us your rants about the first um, 100 days of Trump. And Matt, since you were close to being on a roll there, why don't you start us off and we'll go to Jay and we'll end back up across uh, across the pond with Jonathan. Sure. Well, I'll rant about Congress and the inaction there, which I think is really going to drive a lot of this disclosure uncertainty that we just talked about. Um, it has become clear that the real split in this country – 
And I think in the UK and in France and Europe and many developed countries, the real split now is not left or right politically. It is, are you a nationalist or a globalist in your views and especially your economic views? Now, if that's the case, the question becomes, how does Donald Trump put together a governing coalition to get things done in that nationalist versus global split? And he doesn't have an answer. And Congress doesn't have an answer either. That's why healthcare reform imploded. That's, I suspect, why it will implode again. I also suspect that is why we will not see much in tax reform um, and a whole lot of other stuff that is coming along. And uh, the, you know, the frustration that I have is for a corporate uh, strategy for CEOs and boards planning what they want to do. They've got no idea how they can plan because they don't have a sense of what the legislative climate is. And uh, one other rant, I'll get a little bit more specific. I know that early next week, the first week of May, that the Financial Services Committee in the House is going to have a markup of its Financial Choice Act 2.0, which is it's going to be the opening foray into changing financial regulation and reforming the Dodd-Frank Act. There's a lot in this bill that compliance officers should just want to flush down the toilet. Some of it is good. Some of its ideas are terrible. And even more specifically, it is going to hamstring the SEC's ability to draft rules, adopt and implement rules, um, unless there is an emergency circumstance. So anybody who was here in compliance in the summer of 2008, and I was there and Tom, you were there, you know, we had an emergency circumstance all summer long, all into the fall where the SEC was making up a new rule every day. That is not the way that you want to govern, nor is it at the opposite end of the spectrum, which is what the House is trying to do now, where every single SEC proposal or idea will be cost-benefit analyzed, or analyzed until we're all dead and gone. So that threat to neuter the SEC's ability to look at rules and adopt rules, unless it's an emergency when we're all in a panic and then we're just going to shove them out the door with no thought or research at all. Like that's the world this legislation is pushing us to. That is a bad idea for everybody. And it is certainly a bad idea for compliance officers who are stuck with SEC compliance is something they have to worry about. So that's my rant. I could go on, but I'll, I'll let the, the, everybody else have a turn. Mr. Rosen. Okay, so my rant is about my current addiction to CNN, and mm -hmm. I hope that doesn't politically mark me, but I am sick and tired of breaking news because it's certainly not breaking and it's certainly not news. So uh, I, I just feel bad for the fellow Americans like myself who are addicted to CNN because we all seem to be people who might want to benefit from taking a truck driving school. We might be suffering from ED or mesophilomania, or we're scared by every other drug out there that if we take it, it will have negative reactions that could uh, result in everything leading up to death. So I think we need to start stepping back a little bit more uh, it's only been 100 days, so let's give the administration some time. And not only just the administration, but let's give our senators and our congressmen a little time to figure out the new landscape and go forward. But I hate being tased, teased by breaking news, and one of the things I'm going to try to do is break my addiction to CNN. That's my rant.
Well, we I can help you with a 12-step program on that. Uh, Jonathan. Um, yeah, and, and ho hopefully the 12-step um, program doesn't include a sort of Fox, Fox News replacement therapy. Um, <laughs> so it could be worse, Jack. I, um, a power greater than yourself. Uh, yeah, so maybe given Jay's challenge of digging back to Dickens, which obviously would be regarded as historical in a nation like the U.S., I want to turn our minds back, if we can, briefly to 1399. So 1399, I think, was a little bit of a, a, a contested election in the UK. And then we've had all sorts of general elections since, in 1708, I think, the first general election where England and Scotland uh, participated to elect the same parliament. And our system worked, you know, I wouldn't say perfectly, but it's worked more or less okay in those intervening, whatever, 600, 700 years. Then along came David Cameron, and he had the genius idea that all of that history needed to be changed by having a fixed term parliamentary system. And obviously we had, I'm no historian, but I can't tell you how many, we had, let's say, for the sake of argument, maybe 200 general elections under the old system. And you know what? We had one under the new system that was a great reform. And obviously to get this snap election, Theresa Mays had to effectively repeal the fixed-term parliament system that David Cameron introduced. So I guess my rant is I wish politi uh, politicians would stop meddling in things almost for the sake of it and almost for short-term political gain. We've had enough of that in the UK, but I also think we've had enough of it in many other jurisdictions as well. And in some respects, I think that's why we do have this turmoil, you know, as Matt said, this uh, nationalist versus worldview. But I think a lot of it is self-interest versus perceived conflict and, uh, and you know, the self-interest of the voter versus the perceived self-interest of the politician. And the less we try to bend systems to our own advantages, you know, if, if we're politicians, the less we're seen to bend systems to our own advantage, then maybe the more rational our politics shall become. So I guess you said it was a rant rather than something that we realistically think will happen. But but my perception is that, you know, for example, Trump has said a lot, but done little. He's promised, you know, many things like a reduction in the amount of golf the president plays but that hasn't changed. And I wish they'd stop tinkering with things for tinkering's sake. And I wish they'd stop promising to tinker with systems that have worked okay and replacing them with systems that work a lot less. Okay, Michael Volkoff, do you have a rant for us? Oh, I've, I've had a rant for, for weeks, Tom. And uh, the one rant I have is for all the doomsayers and chicken littles about the FCPA 
falling apart. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if it's marketing or it just to generate attention or these were the people who like in elementary school would be the first to, you know, scream about the latest drama on the uh, playground. Um, but to me, uh, you, you know, to me, there's just a sign of, you know, get it together, people. You know, the world is not coming to an end. Uh, and uh, FCPA enforcement is not going, is something that's taken years to build up. I mean, you could argue 15 years to build up is not going to suddenly evaporate. And there were, and I love uh, one of my favorite bloggers to read besides you, Tom, is um, uh, Matt Stevenson and uh, the Global Anti-Corruption blog, which I think is terrific. And I know Rick Mezik from his years at the World Bank. They're just two incredibly, incredibly talented people. And, uh, you know, uh, Matt was lamenting the end of FCPA enforcement, that Trump's going to turn things around. And uh, when the SEC dropped the conflict, the, the resources, uh, uh, the extractive uh, minerals reporting, he was, this is the beginning of the end. And uh, I'm not saying it was a good thing to get rid of that regulation, but all I'm saying is I never thought for a moment we were going to be sitting looking through the ash heap of FCPA enforcement. Uh, I know there's some people out there who think that it's over or improperly enforced. Um, but whatever you may think, uh, you have to be realistic about advising clients and, you know, designing compliance programs and uh, making sure that you're realistic about what's going to happen. And I really, I'm, I'm sort of tired of the um, ranting and raving, a rant about a rant, a ranting and raving about the demise of, uh, you know, FCPA enforcement. It's just not going to happen. Well, gentlemen, this has just been a ton of fun. I want to thank you all for uh, participating in our 100 days of first 100 days of the Trump administration. For listeners of this podcast, we will be putting out an ebook with our uh, writings, musings, and pontifications on the first 100 days. So uh, look for that, and uh, we'll certainly let you know when that comes out. With that, uh, we will look forward to continuing the conversation. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again, and I hope you've enjoyed these two episodes of the first hundred days of Trump from the compliance perspective from some of the top compliance commentators on the Everything Compliance Roundtable. Please look for the ebook, which we will publish through Com Corporate Compliance Insights, and we will certainly let you know when this is out. If you've listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much, and we look forward to continuing the conversation about everything compliance. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.